0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. I've been studying through the book of Exodus if you're new with us, and lately we've been focusing on the plagues, and we've come to the 10th plague, the anticipation of the 10th plague, the death angel, the death of the firstborn by means of the death angel coming to all who do not have their doorposts covered with the blood of the Lamb. Last week, we looked at God's anger. Why was He so angry? And we understood that it is because His children were threatened, that because Pharaoh had attacked his firstborn, God responded with judgment on the firstborn. He didn't do so immediately. There's plenty of warning, lots of long-suffering and patience on the part of God, but Pharaoh finally hardening his heart earns or draws this judgment. Well, we camped on that doctrine of our adoption, that God, beyond imagination, makes us His children, that God adopts us into His family, calls Himself our Father, identifies us as His sons and daughters, and we notice J. I. Packer calls what he calls the greatest of all thoughts, the greatest of all truths, that we are made children of God we can also know from experience, is the hardest to believe. It is beyond imagination, it's just too hard to believe sometimes, it isn't too good to be true that we are actually children of God, as many as have trusted in Christ. And yet God doesn't rebuke our little faith. God comes to us very intentionally, stoops down to us, accommodates to our weaknesses, It gives us corporate worship and the sacraments within the worship service to seal to our minds and hearts the reality of those promises. Those sacraments in the Old Testament were Passover and circumcision. In the New Testament, those those sacraments become the Lord's Supper and baptism, respectively. So this morning we're studying the institution of Passover in anticipation of the Lord's Supper that we will take this evening and noticing God's intentionality in confirming to our consciences again and again that we are children of God. I want you to look with me at chapter 12, verse 1 in anticipation of a fresh renewal of that great thought, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. That's known in the Jewish calendar as the month of Nisan. Uh, Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. In this manner, you shall eat it. You shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you dispatch your Holy Spirit on us in a particularly powerful way to work by and with this word in our hearts. Cause us to believe it. Cause some to believe it for the very first time and to come into your family. Others of us to believe it. For the thousandth time to be refreshed in it and refreshed in repentance and love and new obedience. And Heavenly Father, convince us that we are Your children. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake and God's people said together, Amen. A few years ago, New York Magazine interviewed eight former inmates who had been released recently from prison, And they asked them all the same question, to share with New York Magazine, the interviewer, to share the first several hours of their freedom. What was it like, those first few hours when you were outside the walls of the prison, all of them for over a decade, first few hours outside the walls of the prison, what was your experience like? One of those is a man named Fernando Bermudez. He was 46 when he was released. He was in prison for 18 years. He said, the first thing I did, the first thing I did was to go running in Inwood Hill Park. I spent a lot of time there, he said. I spent a lot of time there as a kid because I wanted to be a geologist when I grew up. So I went around the park gathering specimens of interesting rocks and insects and and, uh, plants and then I gradually, he said, went from being a nerd to a person who constantly got in trouble until I landed finally in prison. The first thing I did when I was released, I went for a run in Inwood Hill park. I ran through that park remembering those experiences as a kid. And then I came to the end of the run and I saw something I had not seen in 18 years, a tree. And I stopped and I stared at that tree. And then I, then I felt its bark. For the first time in 18 years, I felt the bark of the tree. And there I was, a grown man hugging and crying, hugging that tree. Now, what was that tree for Fernando? Was it his freedom? No, it wasn't his freedom. A judge had declared him to be free. A judge had processed the the paperwork. They, they, They processed the paperwork, and they came to him one day, and they said, You're free, and they unlocked the door, and they put him out of the jail. That's when he was free. He was made free by an official decree. What was the tree? The tree was a kind of sacrament. An objective confirmation of what he had been told was true. He was free. He felt that tree. It confirmed to his feelings that he was free. That tree did not make his freedom any more real. It made him feel his freedom the more really. That's what the sacraments of the church do. It's what the sacrament of Passover and circumcision did, and then the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, they don't make the promises of God any more real. The promises of God are made, they're pronounced by His Word, they're written down in Scripture, they're confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit, but God stoops to our objective and finite weakness, and He says, I'm going I'm to touch you with sensory symbols. That might be a seal to your conscience, they're not going to make the promises of the gospel any more real. They're going to make you instead feel them more really. The Passover is what we read about being instituted here, but we can't help but as we study the Passover, to, 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 to think about Jesus who was the fulfillment of the Passover and the Lord's Supper as that feast, which is the fulfillment of the Passover. And, and in thinking about it, it's helpful for us to use some words from the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it, when it asks, how do you properly prepare for coming to the Lord's table? The Catechism says that we examine ourselves for repentance and love and new obedience. Those are the that's the outline for this this uh, sermon today, and it and it fits nicely with what the Passover is all about because it's of course anticipating the Lord's Supper. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, as these Old Testament saints came to the Passover, we are coming to be provoked to repentance and to love and to new obedience. Let me show you how it comes out in the passage, beginning in verses one through seven. This is a call to be provoked to repentance. Todd said earlier in the service that repentance is a gift. It is a gift of grace that God grants to us that enables us to turn around. That's what repentance means. It means to turn around from from following your own ways, following those ways that are destructive ultimately to yourself and and that are not pleasing to the Lord and destructive to other people. Is to turn away from them and to turn in love to Christ. Where real life is found. Now, you, you might say, no, this isn't, this really doesn't fit here. Why would, why would, why would these Jewish believers, why would these Israelites who had been made captive for 430 years, how have they sinned? They're the ones who have been victimized, they're the ones who have been sinned against, and that's absolutely true. They have been sinned against. And God validates that when he sends Moses to them as their as their liberator. At the same time, they are sinners. It's it's true by definition. They're born sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is like a lost sheep. We've each turned to our own way. No one is righteous. No, not even one. We are born sinners. We are born rebels. No one ever has to teach us how to sin. And we know these the sins of these Israelites too. We've already studied it. We've seen it. You know, they were happy about Moses at first, but then when things got more difficult because Pharaoh was angry, they got mad at Moses. They rejected him. They were rejecting God's word. They said, you know, uh, at least we had straw for our bricks before you came. Now it's even harder. We'd rather you go back to where you came from. They were trying to reject God's word, God's liberator. Later in the book of Joshua, in chapter 24, Joshua tells the children of these who were let free from from uh, Egypt, he says, uh, you need to put away your false gods, your idols, like your fathers worshipped across the river in the land of Egypt. Apparently, these Israelites uh, gave in to the idolatry around them, they never gave up their belief in God, but they ascribed some glory that was due to Him, to these false gods, the Egyptians. They were idolaters. Even while they're crying out for God to redeem them, they're idolaters. They are in need of repentance. God says, I'm making a new beginning for you. This will be a new beginning. It wasn't the the first... This wasn't the beginning of their calendar. They had this calendar already, but he said, I'm giving you a feast now to celebrate what is coming in the new year, truly a new beginning. Can you imagine how they started every year for 430 years? It's another year of slavery, another year of slavery. And now he says, I'm giving you a feast, calls the Passover, and it's going to be celebrated in the first month of the year. And it is going to be a reminder to you that you are no longer a slave to Egypt in any way. You're not a slave to their gods. You're not a slave to their practices. You're not a slave to sin. But you are free. And you now have the freedom to to exercise that freedom in selflessness. And in giving your lives to the Lord and giving your lives away to each other. God is calling them to repentance. To look in every nook and cranny of their lives for sin. That'll come later in verse 15, is there to look for leaven. I want you to look and see, is there anything left of selfishness in you? You're no longer a slave to self. You're no longer a slave to the false gods. You're no longer a slave to those who tell you that you're no more than a slave. You are free people. And I am instituting this Supper, because I'm going to have to train you constantly to remember you are not a slave. It's what the Lord's Supper does for us as well. We lived our lives as slaves of sin. We lived our lives as orphans, as we learned last week from Galatians 4. And God has to constantly remind us that we are children of God, no longer slaves of sin, no longer slaves to self. So when God calls the children of Israel to take of their first fruit, to take the lamb, their best, the best specimen of their flock, it was a real act of sacrifice and faith. These were poor people, of course. They had absolutely nothing. They were slaves. This, this goat or this lamb could be very productive for them, could provide good meat for them or good milk as a goat or, a, or wool as a lamb. This could benefit their family. But God said, by faith, I want you to take that lamb into your household. I want you to take it in on the 10th month, slaughter on the 14th month. That means for four days it's going to become your friend. It's going to become your household pet. You'll come to love that little lamb. You may even have a name for the little fellow. And then eventually, I want you to give him back to me. Not because God is cruel, not because He is so uh, unbelievably demanding, but because He wants to transform us into givers. You know, fundamental to, be, to being transformed into the image of God is to be set free from being selfish into a giver. One of the essential parts of God's being is that He is a giver, He gave the creation, and He so loved that He gave His Son. So the, the, one of the major processes of the Christian life is to transform us from selfish people into givers to becoming more and more like him. Give this lamb to me. Turn away from your selfishness. Turn away from your self-trust. Turn away from your self-worship, from your slavery to this world, to these things, and turn to me. I'll set you free it takes us to the next point. Why would God, why would God tell His children to give them His, to to give Him their best? Why does He say the same to us? Why does He say to us, give me the first fruit of your increase? Is God that needy? Does God need what we have? Is that God that self-indulgent? Is he, is he a cruel taskmaster that he, that he takes the best from us to himself? No, I want you to think through this. Look back at verses 8 to 10, just what he says about the way they're to deal with this, this lamb. They've taken into their household, then they're to slaughter it. They shall eat the flesh that night, verse 8, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. Now, at first that might turn your stomach. It seems so so inappropriate, this idea of sacrificing an animal. But do you realize this is an innovation? This was a radical invention by God. This would have been something that would It was unheard of in ancient Near Eastern worship. Not a meal, that was frequently prescribed by pagan gods to have a meal, but that meal with a pagan god was bloody and raw or half-cooked meat. It It was repulsive, repugnant. It was foul. It was more of a punishment than it was of a feast that the god would make you eat uncut uncooked meat. And so God says, I want you to demonstrate your love for me by trusting me with the best specimen of your flock. And then I want you to cook it, cook it completely. And then I want you to eat every last bit of it realize how radical that was to a slave? God is saying, in effect, I am hosting a supper for you. I want only the best meat. God's not going to eat it. I'm going to feed it back to you. I want you to take the best because I'm going to give it back to you. And then instead of the way you're accustomed to eating as a slave, just picking through very carefully because you've got to make it last for a long time, I want you to eat every last bit of it it's a feast. It's the Lord's feast. He's the host. He's the cook. He wants you to eat all of it. Do you feel the love of that gift of God saying, you are my children. I'm not going to treat you as… I'm not going to dehumanize you with an uncooked meal. I'm going to give you the best because I want you to know you're loved. I want you to know I've given nothing less than the best for you." But why a lamb? Think about the lamb throughout redemptive history. You know, we say that we've, no matter where we turn in Scripture, we see Christ. Christ is being revealed in all of Scripture. But He's revealed progressively. That means that, that God slowly adds details to the fuller picture that's going to be finally realized in Christ. So just think about what He's revealed over redemptive history through a lamb. The first sacrifice of a lamb is right at the dawn of human history, right, With, uh, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve sinned and God promised that He was going to bring uh, the Messiah through the seed of Eve who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, the devil. And, and so, the first sacrifice we see in response to that revelation of grace is Abel bringing a lamb and shedding its blood on an altar, and the Bible says God was pleased with it. So, the first hint we get is that blood, the shedding of blood is going to be necessary for our redemption. And then the next time we see a lamb figuring significantly into redemptive histories with Abraham. Remember, Abram was uh, called from out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he's told he and Sarah are told that, that they're going to have uh, descendants that are more numerous than the stars and the grains of sand. And then he's given one son, covenant son, Isaac. And, and that's the one through whom all of these these blessings are to come and, and then and then soon after Isaac is well into his, his early teens uh, uh, Isaac is uh, God says to Abraham I want you to sacrifice Isaac and Abraham contrary to the way he's been long before without a question takes Isaac up on the mountain and and and, and puts him on the altar and, and Isaac says I see the I see the fire I see the wood. I see the altar. Where is the lamb? Abraham says, God himself will provide a lamb. Abram in faith, and we learn later, he reasoned that God was so faithful. God had proven his faithfulness so much to Abraham, he, he was convinced that if he if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead because God had to be true to his covenant promise. So he raises his, his knife to plunge it into the, into the heart of Isaac. But an angel stops him and he says, now I know that you fear me. Now I know I'm the most important thing in all of your life. Don't sacrifice Isaac. Take the ram in the thicket and sacrifice him. Another, another detail is added. It would be the substitution of an innocent victim. There's blood, there's substitution, and then we come to Passover. The Passover adds the detail that what we're being saved from is the judgment of God. We're being being saved. We need the blood of an innocent victim to save us from the wrath of God. But why? Why is God angry? We learn that in the Day of Atonement. Sometime later, as God sets up the worship of Israel, He establishes the Day of Atonement and he says on that day you'll take two goats, one, you'll, one you will uh, send away, you'll put your sin symbolically on his head and send him over the horizon, that's the scapegoat. And the other you'll slaughter and take his blood and take it into the Holy of Holies, the high priest will, will cover the mercy seat with it, that, that seat with the, the angel's wings touching on top of the Ark of the Covenant and in the Ark of the Covenant were the, the Ten Commandments. And the symbol was as God looked down from heaven and He looked at the people of Israel, had they kept the Ten Commandments or not? Of course they hadn't, but why didn't He judge them? Why didn't He kill them? Because He couldn't see them in relationship to the commandments except looking through the blood on the mercy seat. We needed the blood of an innocent victim substituted in our place to save us from the judgment of God that is due to us because we are breaking, because we've broken his commandments. And thereafter, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs were slaughtered at the Passover to atone for the children of Israel's sins. It didn't work, it never achieved final atonement. Then finally the day came when, as John the Baptist was preaching, he looked up from his sermon, up from his baptizing, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb, the last Lamb the perfect unblemished lamb, the personal sacrifice of God himself for us. And on the 10th day of Nisan, the same day that they were to take a lamb into their household, on the 10th day of Nisan, the Lord Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey at the same time as tens of thousands of lambs are being driven into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover sacrifices. There is the last lamb being driven into Jerusalem, driven to the cross, so that on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, on the same day that these tens upon tens of thousands of lambs are being sacrificed, the Lord Jesus, the last lamb, is lifted on the cross, the final one to provide the once for all sufficient sacrifice as the Lamb of God. For the sins of the world, not just for one able, not just for one household, not for just for one ethnic nation, but for the whole world. The Lamb of God slain finally for you. What do you do with him? What were the children of Israel to do with the lamb that God roasted for them and gave them they were to eat? all of it. They were to demonstrate their solidarity with the salvation that God was offering them. As they became one with the flesh of that lamb, they were saying, you must become one with it. You must save us. You must draw us to yourself. You must bring life to us or we won't live. It should not have struck people as strange then in John chapter 6. When Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Oh, they took it as strange, as cannibalistic, because they had transformed the religion that God had revealed to them. A religion of grace, they transformed it into a religion of works. They thought that they were taking the Passover as something that commended them to God instead of something that's marking their mercy received from God. Jesus said, that lamb, those lambs you have been ingesting all these years were not able to save you, take me, receive what I offer to you by grace. I offer you my righteousness. I offer you my justification. I offer you the gift of adoption. I offer you the gift of sanctification, holiness. Take it, and when you take me, you get all of me, and I take your life to mine, and I join it mysteriously to mine so that it cannot fail until I get you home. When we take the Lord's Supper... That's what, we're remi- that's what we're being reminded of. We're no longer slaves, but we are loved. And it is God who spreads a table for us and says, come to my table of peace. Come, eat, drink deeply at the wells of his mercy. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you, that you have to become worthy of. Is something that promises to you the grace of repentance, the grace of the sealing love of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of new obedience. Notice how they were to partake in verses 11 to 14, in this manner you shall eat it. How? You should put a belt around your tunic, cinch it up because you're traveling. Put the sandals on your feet because you're not staying at home. You're walking. Take your staff in your hand because you're going on a journey. You're getting out of here. You're marching to Zion. You're leaving the place of slavery and entering upon a journey, a journey of new obedience not to cruel taskmasters but to your heavenly Father. I love the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. It's new to me. Something—it's another one of the wonderful gifts I've inherited. This manner of taking the Lord's Supper, of walking forward—I've—I've—it's hey, hey, new to me because I only practiced the way Presbyterians mostly invented, which was pew communion. That you bring it, you put it in the pew with them. As, as much as I hate to admit it, Presbyterians mostly invented that. It's not the way the church has typically taken the Lord's Supper throughout the centuries. The church has typically moved toward the table, walked toward the table, and received and continued walking. Isn't that more in keeping with what the the Lord's trying to do among us? How many people when they're starving of hunger, you hand them a piece of bread and they hold it in their hands and they meditate over it for 30 minutes? Or they're, 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 they're dying of thirst and you hand them some water and they they wait and they meditate on that water. No, they, they eat it and they drink it because they're starving to death. You don't wait in the pew, you come to the table. Jesus says, come. You say, I'm not worthy to come. You're exactly right, you're not worthy to come. Brilliant observation. And you can't make yourself worthy to come. You don't come to the table because you're worthy. You come to the table because you're desperately starving for grace. And the Lord Jesus promises it. And he says, here it is. But don't sit there as a disciple. You take it, get refreshed, and get going. New obedience. And what do you get from him? As you worship and as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, what does he give you, not, not meritoriously. He's promising you that He's given you everything you need called His life. Look at, look at how our own text makes that point in verse 12, He says, this is the Lord's Passover. This is the Lord's table. This is the Lord's supper. It's the Lord's dinner party. I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike the firstborn. I will execute judgments, I am the Lord, I see the blood, I pass over, I strike the land of Egypt." What is the promise? How does He provide new obedience? He provides new obedience through His life, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We come to the table to have it reinforced to us. We're no longer slaves. We're beloved children and we're enabled to live the Christian life. I've read another testimony in that article in the New York Magazine, oh here it is, I got worked up, in the New York Magazine, Derek Hamilton. Age 49, 21 years in prison. He said this The day I walked out, my wife, my nephew, and my son were in the car waiting for me. There was a church right around the corner. I'd always listened to the bells ringing when I was in jail. I didn't even know where the church really was, but I would pray when I would hear the bells. It was my only opportunity to pray at the same time people on the outside were praying. When I got out, that was one of the first things I wanted to do, just go around and pray in that church. I went in. I thanked God for my release. Going into that church, it was like being born again. Why do you come to this place and to these sacraments? Not because this makes the promise, the promises of God more real, but it does by God's mercy, by His Spirit, cause you to feel the truth of it more really. So, come to Him. Come tonight. Take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for persisting, pursuing. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the hound of heaven, the spirit of adoption. And Holy Father, for humbling yourself so often, so patiently, perseveringly to convince us that we are Your children. May that be true of everyone in this place. May there not be one who leaves this place without trusting You as Lord and Savior and thus becoming a child of God. In Jesus' name we pray it, God's people said together, amen.